Appeals have been made to the Red Cross to help evacuate patients from the building. Israel had told residents of neighbouring areas to head to Deir al-Bala for their own safety as its ground offensive continues to target neighbourhoods to the east of Gaza City for a second day. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Ryan Curtis. Europe is being urged to toughen up sanctions against Russia. The black boxes of the plane have just been handed over to Malaysian officials. Here at home, the HKMA fights back against the IMF. And also in the headlines, Netflix, Texas Instruments and Chipotle all post very strong U.S. earnings. Netflix passes 50 million subscribers and makes a push on international streaming. Markets were tepid overnight, though, as investors worried about Ukraine. Unfortunately, the Russian-backed separatists who control the area continue to block the investigation. They've repeatedly prevented international investigators from gaining full access to the wreckage. As investigators approached, they fired their weapons into the air. The separatists are removing evidence from the crash site, all of which begs the question, what exactly are they trying to hide? President Obama, business activity and markets were cautious, but no sharp selling in stocks. The news is always viewed as positive because even bad news implies that the Fed and other central banks will print more money. That's Mark Faber, and we'll be hearing more from the Maverick Investor a bit later in the program. In our specialized segments this morning, we'll be discussing Russia-Ukraine as EU foreign ministers prepare to discuss sanctions on Moscow. Our guests include Purus Exena of his own firm, Philip Klapwick of Precious Metals Insights. He'll be talking about gold, silver, and other metals. We'll also be speaking with Martin Henneke of the Henley Group about I-bonds and general market conditions, and also Mark Michelson from APCO Worldwide on the BRICS Development Bank. Well, the U.N. Security Council is demanding Russian separatists give unrestricted access to the site of a downed Malaysian airliner. A resolution calls on armed groups to stop any actions that harm the integrity of the site. And as you heard, President Obama said that Moscow must compel separatists to cooperate with the investigation. Russia has extraordinary influence over these separatists. Russia has urged them on. Russia has trained them. We know that Russia has armed them. Key separatist leaders are Russian citizens. Russia, and President Putin in particular, has direct responsibility to compel them to cooperate with the investigation. That is the least that they can do. And the president spoke about the human tragedy. Over the last several days, our hearts have been absolutely broken as we've learned more about uh, the extraordinary and and beautiful lives that were lost. Men, women, and children, and infants who were killed so suddenly and so senselessly. Our thoughts and prayers continue to be with their families around the world who are going through just unimaginable grief. 
And he said he spoke with many foreign leaders about that. EU foreign ministers, by the way, are expected to approve sanctions today. The sanctions will target Russian oligarchs. Let's see how Asian markets are turning now. In Australia, the ASX 200 up three points. And in Seoul, the Kospi is up as well. Japan is higher, too. Japan closed yesterday for the Marine Day holiday, making up for some lost time. The dollar-yen is 101.48, so that's the dollar a little stronger against the yen. The euro's at a dollar thirty-five. The euro's not budging too much, and we'll be talking with our analysts about that. Why? Why is gold not moving much, and why is the euro not moving down? And the pound is now at 13 Hong Kong dollars, 23 cents. On Wall Street, stocks did fall. Investors worried that the sanctions could lead to a deeper fallout in markets. These concerns kept investors on the sidelines. The S&P 500 down not 0.2% at 1973. The Dow Jones Industrial Average off 48 points at 17,051. Most of the key earnings came out after the bell, and we'll get to them in a minute. But as you heard earlier, investor Mark Faber is not bullish on stocks. We are in a bubble, in a bubble. Uh, people are optimistic. There is euphoria about uh, prices going higher and so forth. And that may be possible. The question is, are stocks good value? Well, he goes on to answer his own question. I don't think that U.S. stocks are particularly good value. If you look at uh, price to book, if you look at the market capitalization as a percent of the economy, is now at the second highest it's ever been. The highest was in 2000. Mm -hmm. And each time... When the market cap as a percent of the economy was this high, it ended in tears. That's Mark Faber. Netflix, Texas Instruments, and Chipotle all posted strong earnings. That suggested to some that overall earnings may be stronger than forecast. Netflix's profit doubled in the quarter, and it topped 50 million subscribers. The company, by the way, has 36 million subscribers in the United States and another 14 million customers in 40-odd other countries. This is Money for Nothing. Uh, Look at business and finance here. We'll also have news in greater detail at the bottom of the hour. And we'll be speaking with our guests here in just a moment. Well, McDonald's and KFC parent Yum! Brands have apologized to customers after Chinese regulators shut down a local meat supplier. Kristen Romero reports. The allegation stemmed from a local TV program in which an undercover reporter claimed to have witnessed the supplier using expired meat products while allegedly committing other unhygienic practices. The reporter is reported to have evidence that spoiled chicken and beef were repackaged and had its shelf life extended for a year. Officers from the Shanghai Food and Drug Administration inspected the factory after the program was aired, ordered a halt to operations, and announced a deeper investigation into the matter. The U.S. chains are also conducting their own probes. The latest food safety scandal could affect their ambitions to expand in the mainland market. Both companies had in 2012 pledged to ensure the safety of the food they serve after China Central Television reported that the companies may have sold chicken that had been given unapproved antibiotic drugs and growth hormones. 
The developer Cheung Kong has defended its decision not to set up a showroom for the smallest units of a development that is pushing in Taipo. The firm's executive director, Justin Chu, said the flats are so small that they could be seen in just a glance, and therefore a mock-up wasn't necessary. The flats are smaller than 200 square feet. Mr. Chu also dismissed accusations that Cheung Kong had broken the law. Some critics have made the charge that the firm forced buyers to agree not to see the Montvert project before signing sales agreements and that that was against the law. Sales started over the weekend. Our Wendy Wong reports. Mr. Chu said the developer had been misunderstood by critics of his decision to require buyers to agree to forgo the right to visit the completed units before signing on the doctored line. He explained to reporters that site visits could have been dangerous because the completed phase of the project shares an entrance with phase two of the site, which is still under construction. Mr. Chu added that allowing prospective buyers to visit the site could also have held up construction. He said it's still unclear when site visits will be safe and admitted that Chung Kong may not have handled the problem well. He had no qualms, though, that buyers of the smallest units, 177-square-foot studio spaces, weren't even given a walk-up of the space, saying one glance would have covered the entire apartment. And Mr. Chu dismissed accusations that the layout of the larger three-bedroom units was designed to make it easy for buyers to put up dividing walls so they can rent out parts of the flats as subdivided units. More news flow coming up shortly here on Money for Nothing. Time 12 minutes after 8 o'clock. We look at the data now and some of the latest uh, metrics. The FTSE 100 was down 21 points overnight. The DAX off 107 points in Frankfurt, 96.12. The CAC was lower in Paris, down 30 points at 4,304. But as I mentioned, uh, markets are sort of perking up here in Asia as investors are looking beyond some of the geopolitical risk. Uh, Oil was a bit higher, though, overnight. Brent crude now 107.68. And gold, $1,311.60. So four interesting guests coming up on the program. Let's flip a coin and see which one comes up first. Oh, it's Peru Sagzena of Peru Sagzena Wealth Management. Peru, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Okay, so we've got the EU foreign ministers meeting today, uh, possibility of sanctions against Russia. Does that have a, a big impact on global markets? Well, so far, the markets have said they don't really care about what's happening uh, on the geopolitical front. We've had a bit of a sell-off over the past few weeks, but the selling has been more or less contained. Uh, So I don't really expect any big decisions or any massive impact on the stock markets. Where does it cross over into a big impact? Uh, If tensions really heighten between Russia and the West and we look like we're going back to a Cold War scenario, does that do it? Well, that would make an impact, of course. You're going to have problems. The markets will probably sell off for, for a while. But um, my experience in the stock market now for um, over 15 years, Brian, is that the stock market is driven by monetary policy and by liquidity, not so much by geopolitical events. And what about earnings? Well, earnings make a difference, of course. Uh, If you drop interest rates to zero and you pursue an expansionary monetary policy with short-term interest rates are near zero in most of the developed world, then... You have the uh, the triggering off of the credit cycle. Credit starts expanding. People borrow money. They leverage up. That increases spending, picks up economic activity, and earnings uh, go up. So earnings increasing or decreasing really is a function of monetary policy. So is QE a good thing? Well, QE has been good in terms of avoiding the depression. If there was no QE, I would I would imagine that there would have been a big a bigger 
financial crisis. Uh, it, this stock market rally wouldn't have happened. The stock housing markets wouldn't have bottomed out when they did. I know the some uh, the Austrian school of thought disagrees. They thought that it would have been better to let the whole world just collapse. I don't agree. You know, if you look at the uh, 1930s, uh, 5,000 odd banks went bankrupt in the U.S. Uh, that wasn't pretty for anybody. So you know, QE, in my view, did its uh, thing. Whether it is really had an impact on the economy or not is uh, debatable, but it's had the desirable impact on the stock markets and also on the asset markets, which yeah, eventually will feed into the economy. We've got an Austrian school guy here in the studio, so we'll get to him uh, in a minute, uh, but um, give you some more time. Uh, when does the Fed start to take away the punch bowl? Well, the QE is going to end towards the end of the year, and I think that interest rates will probably start increasing uh, in the middle of next year. And unless the inflationary expectations go really out of control, I suspect they will be increased in baby steps and it will probably go on. Monetary tightening will probably go on for at least a couple of years. And the next yield curve inversion will occur two, three years from now. And that's when I think this economic cycle will top out, the credit cycle will break, and we will have the onset of the next bear market. So I don't think we're there yet. I think we're going to have still maybe another two or three years of rising asset prices. Hard to imagine inflation picking up too much at the moment, uh, would you not agree, in the U.S.? Because there's not a lot of wage pressure. Uh, you see almost deflationary conditions in in some countries around um, Europe, uh, you see the yield on the 10-year Bund down around 115, 1.15%, while the yield on the 10-year the, uh, U.S. Treasury is only around 247 or 248. doesn't really suggest that inflation is coming, does it? I don't think there's going to be huge inflation uh, anytime soon, uh, simply because you have so much excess capacity throughout the developed world. Uh, Japan is barely growing. Europe is just coming out of the worst recession in many, many decades. America is uh, arguably doing a little bit better than uh, Europe and Japan. China is already overstretched. You have a huge property bubble in China, which in my view is going to end very badly. So I don't think that there's going to be huge inflation anytime soon. But I think the Fed will start increasing the Fed funds rate probably sometime in the middle of next year. And the tightening cycle will go on. And I think that will end the bull market. So is this an okay time for business leaders to invest money, in your view? Oh, well, of course. Uh, you know, if you are in the right areas and the right sectors of the economy with uh, debt so cheap, and if you don't have very overextended balance sheets, it's a wonderful time to uh, borrow money. And even if you don't want to invest in new business ventures, you can simply borrow money at near zero yeah, and so, buy back your own shares. So here we are in Hong Kong, and, um, you know, our hinterland, in a sense, is China. Lots of opportunities there. But is your concern about the property um, bubble, as you'd put it, um, is that enough that you wouldn't invest money in China? I wouldn't, no. Uh, simply because if you look at property uh, valuations, they are so incredibly high now uh, that if this thing, or not if, but when this thing ends badly, is going to take down the rest of the economy, and especially the banking sector, just like we saw in the West. So I would be very careful of investing money in Chinese equities at this point in time. I've got Philip coming up in just a moment, Philip uh, Clapwick, and we'll talk to him about uh, precious metals. But I'd like to get your view on gold first, uh, maybe counter that with his and Martin's as well, who is also another guest coming up later. Um, why is gold not really serving as much of a safe haven. I mean, it's, you'd think that it might be spiking with all of this trouble in um, in Ukraine. Well, gold has done its thing, in my view, Brian. I may be wrong, but we first turned bullish on gold in 2001 when nobody liked gold. Everybody hated gold. 
Uh, gold did incredibly well for 10 years. In my view, it topped out in 2011. That was the end of the bull market. We are now in the early stages or maybe two or three years into a secular bear market. Interest rates in the U.S. are on the way up. The dollar, in my view, is likely to strengthen against the other paper currencies. So that is going to be uh, – uh, these are going to be two big headwinds for gold. And if my assessment is correct and if the housing markets have bottomed out in uh, the developed world, that's going to be good for the economy. And gold is a counter-cyclical asset. Yeah. It tends to do well when yeah, the economy is not be, doing well. You used to be such a proponent of gold, too. Um, you know, when we started doing these interviews uh, decades ago, it seems like <laughs> you were always uh, pretty positive on gold. Okay, so we'll just leave that for the moment and we'll get – uh, Philip Clapwick to talk about it in a minute. But what about the euro? Why is the euro not going down? It seems to be stuck on 135, 136 against the uh, greenback. Well, we had a little bit of a break in the euro a few weeks ago, and then we're having some consolidation. But if you look at the price chart of the euro, the euro is now trading below the 200-day moving average, below the 100-day, below the 50-day. So I think this is just a pause before the next leg down. We are quite bearish on the euro. I think the euro is going to weaken this year. Okay, so what's your best investment idea of the moment? Well, I would invest in stocks and stay with the strong sectors. You know, if you look at asset managers, you look at insurance companies, uh, the biotech sector is doing really well at the moment. Semiconductors are breaking out. We've recently taken some exposure after three or four years in the emerging markets. If you look at the price charts of the emerging market ETFs, you know, Brazil, Australia is not so much an emerging market, but just another example. You look at India, the emerging market ETFs, they've just come out of a massive 12 to 15-month consolidation phase, and they're all breaking out to a new 52-week high. So the emerging markets look quite interesting. We've got about 15% invested there at the moment. So these are some of the areas we're looking at. The transportation stocks are doing really well, Brian. The logistics are, are doing incredibly well. That's bullish, isn't it? Well, that is. That's, these I are mean, all that's bullish cyclical. overall, not just for them, but for the rest of the economy. Correct. I mean, these are all cyclical sectors. I mean, you look at the autos. Uh, they're doing really well as well in America. So, you know, these uh, charts are telling me that the bears have got it wrong for now and, and things are on the way up. All right, Peru, thanks very much for being with us, as usual, and we'll talk again shortly. My pleasure. Peru Sagzena of Peru Sagzena Wealth Management. Well, British police have begun a criminal investigation into alleged fraud in the City of London's foreign exchange market. Traders are alleged to have colluded to manipulate exchange rates in a business that involves trades worth trillions of dollars every day. The BBC's Simon Gumpertz reports. The City of London and other major financial centres have been awash with allegations about traders colluding to manipulate exchange rates using internet chat rooms to share information. The US Department of Justice has already launched a criminal investigation. In the UK, the Serious Fraud Office has issued a brief statement confirming that it too is investigating fraud in the foreign exchange market, though there are no precise details about the allegations or the individuals. The repercussions of any wrongdoing could be very significant, particularly in in London, which is the world's foreign exchange hub. The time is now 21 minutes after 8 o'clock. I'd like to welcome Philip Clapwick, Managing Director of Precious Metals Insights Limited. Philip, good morning. Good morning. So back to that first question I put to Peru. <laughs> With all the tensions in the Middle East, I mean, you've got the Gaza uh, that's blowing up and uh, Ukraine, obviously a lot of tensions between Russia and the West and looks like more sanctions coming. Why is gold not performing very well? Well, gold has performed reasonably well in the short term in response to these geopolitical crises. Uh, we, we've seen blips up in the price. And the main question one has to ask is where would gold be without this prop, if you like, from geopolitical risk? And I think it would be considerably lower than it, than it now is. So there is some geopolitical froth in the price, if you like. 
but it's certainly not driving it higher. And that's because I think the market is fundamentally in, in a bear phase. Uh, I think prices will probably start to head lower once some of this froth is blown off, assuming, of course, that tensions don't ratchet up, uh, particularly between West and the Russians. I think then we will see a greater focus on the economic fundamentals, which are not really positive for gold. Uh, we heard earlier the prospect so, so not, of U.S. Not, dollar strengthening, for example. You're not long higher gold. rates. Um, well, yes, I, I think gold, you could be long gold, but long gold as an insurance policy okay. as a part of a balanced portfolio. So I wouldn't much? suggest that you want to, in the short term, speculate on the long side at the moment, particularly given the fact that they're pretty substantial short term speculative positions that have been built lately. So what sort of percentage of a portfolio would uh, you recommend for gold? Well, I... I mean, you know, as an insurance policy, in case, you know, in case, you know, we go to hell in a handbasket. I, I think for people who have got sufficient net worth, uh, that there's something really worth trying to protect. Um, I think 5 to 10% of your portfolio in gold is, is a good idea as a backstop. Um, I think... Higher levels, particularly given current circumstances, are probably not warranted because there's more potential downside than upside. Hmm. So you would think that with all of this quantitative easing, that that would drive down the value of currencies and up the price of precious metals. Yes, I mean, but we, a... we haven't seen uh, inflation uh, in the real economy yet. Uh, we've seen it in stock prices uh, and in certain other asset classes. Uh, I mean, we haven't yet seen inflation come into the in the real economy because the money's stuck on the Fed's balance sheet and because the velocity <laughs> of money has collapsed. I understand um, the intellectual argument that you know if inflation's going up, gold would be uh, would be good. But wouldn't even currencies going down? They have to go down against something. So even if there isn't inflation, wouldn't that provide negative pressure on uh, fiat currencies and upward pressure on on precious metals? Well, the curious thing is that at the moment we're in a world of negative real interest rates, and we have been for a very substantial period of time. Uh, for a while, this was certainly providing support to gold, particularly in the context of uh, heightened inflation expectations amongst at least some investors. But that seems to have played out now. People have switched their attention or switched their attention some time ago now, two years ago, back to the stock market. And I really think the question for gold is, how does it react now, if and when, and I think it probably is when, the stock market bubble bursts? Uh, does gold see some of that money which went out of the metal into stocks come back into gold? Do we start to see gold having a nice run again uh, when the stock market sells off? Yes, but shouldn't the bond market sell off before the stock market if things are getting back to normal, in your thesis? Well, if you look at bond prices, uh, you know, they're even more radically overpriced than, than those of stocks. Uh, <laughs> well, there's too much money out there chasing that, that, Well, there is. There, there, there is. And at some point, this, this could come back to haunt us. Um, you know, I, I'm quite sympathetic with the view that the quantitative easing that has taken place will not be effectively sterilized. And that if we do see uh, lending uh, increase. We do see the money, uh, velocity of money, t money pick up, that, that we could have an inflation surprise at some point. When you look at the fundamentals, you've talked a lot about gold. What about silver? Well, silver tends to follow gold quite closely. Um, what's been good for silver lately is that industrial demand with an improving economy has helped to buoy uh, the silver market somewhat. Silver also has been sold off 
significantly greater than gold. I mean, silver got close to 50 bucks an ounce, and it's currently trading at $21. Uh, so silver's had a really major hit, and a lot of the speculative money that was in the metal has been washed out. And what we see now is pretty solid industrial demand and also reasonably good demand from small investors buying coins and bars. Okay, let me bring in uh, Martin Henneke from the Henley Group for just one moment. Martin's really going to be a guest in the second half hour. Is all this stuff too esoteric for the average listener? Does this matter? We're talking about uh, the level of interest rates and, and gold and uh, you know, whether it has an impact on business. Does it matter to you, Martin? Well, of course, it all matters to the investors here. You know, you have got negative real interest rates, or I assume you have got to do something if you don't want to lose 5% per annum due to inflation, roughly. So you've got to invest, so obviously all these questions are relevant. And one thing just to mention, I definitely agree with Philip, the biggest bubble that I see as well maybe in the bond market right now, you know, because obviously no yield. And I don't believe that the market is so efficient to correctly anticipate that there's no inflation risk. Sometimes it's just, it's just a hurt instinct. People rush no thinking, rushing into something. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to me that, I mean, if you look at gold versus bonds, if all these people are pouring into government bonds and willing to get one and a half to two and a half percent, and um, they're bonds. so desperate. Yeah, well, I mean, that gets a little more, maybe five percent. But, uh, you know, if they're so desperate for yield, then they wouldn't buy gold where you get no yield. Well, um, you, have to, you have to look at it net of inflation, uh, first of all, right? Okay. So, Let, Let's go back to Philip and, uh, and give Philip another couple minutes before we get to the news at the bottom of the hour. Um, India buying, China buying, how does that weigh into uh, the formula? Well, they're not buying. That's the problem. That's part of the problem at the moment is that demand in China, the world's largest market for physical gold, and in India, the second largest market, is, is, is rather lackluster. Last year, it was fantastic in China, pretty crummy in India due to government controls and imports. Uh, this year, the first quarter wasn't too bad in China, at least for jewellery, but it was useless for bars. And the second quarter has shaped up pretty badly, at least on a year-on-year -year basis. So you're not seeing the same degree of fundamental support you saw last year, I think, from these key markets. What about palladium? Well, or, or palladium of, is an interesting one because yeah. we were talking earlier about political risk and palladium is a, is a market where political risk is a major factor and that's because Russia produces close to 50% of all the mined palladium in the world. And investors are concerned about the possibility of shipments of palladium from Russia to the West to car companies which require this metal for auto catalyst systems that there could be interdiction of supply. We've seen it before several years ago and the price went crazy. Uh, there's definitely some geopolitical risk in the price there. There's a concern that if the West ratchets things up that the Russians could respond uh, through uh, squeezing the palladium market. And just briefly, in terms of the other metals and the other hard commodities, uh, anything in particular you really like that investors could maybe take a look at? Well, I, I think if you look at things like water and farmland, seems to me that, that the type of assets that in the long run could be most interesting, uh, given uh, thing, factors like China's uh, increased demand uh, for meat products, uh, scarcity of water supplies in certain parts of the world. I, I think those type of, for long-term investment, uh, are assets worth con considering. I'm, I'm also, in the long run, pretty bullish on gold, I might add. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we will see circumstances return that will be highly supportive of okay. uh, much higher gold prices. Briefly, Philip, where are you based? I'm based in Hong Kong. 
how come I haven't had you on this program? Uh, and, <laughs> I mean, this is well, that's not my problem. <laughs> yes, it's my problem. Yeah, I'm admitting yeah. it on air. All right, you're on our list now. You're going to thank be you very back. much. Thank you very much. Uh, that was Philip Klapwick, and he joining us. I have no idea if that's the right way to spell or pronounce the name Klapwich, and he's the managing director of Precious Metals Insights Limited. Money for nothing at eight thirty. Markets are buoyant for whatever reason. All the Asian markets are higher. Let's look at the weather briefly, expecting uh, to see fine conditions, hot, some haze, isolated showers, and a maximum temperature of 33. The news is next. The news with Samantha Butler. A pro-Russian separatist leader in eastern Ukraine has handed over the two black box flight recorders from the Malaysian plane flight MH17, which came down on Thursday. The separatists also announced a ceasefire within a 10-kilometer radius of the crash site. Earlier, following international pressure, the separatists released a train carrying most of the 298 victims. The remains will be handed over to the Dutch authorities to be returned home for identification and eventual burial. Radio Australia's Philip Williams reports from Donetsk. Nothing has angered relatives and governments more than the inexplicable hold-up in the repatriation of the bodies of those who died. For days they've been stored in refrigerated railway carriages at a small station near the crash site. Now the train is heading for the Ukrainian government-controlled city of Kharkov. The remains will then be flown by Dutch aircraft back to Holland where the forensic task of identification will begin. At the site itself, the search for the remaining victims appears to have been suspended and all emergency service personnel have left the scene. The United Nations Security Council has unanimously adopted a resolution calling for international investigators to be given safe and unrestricted access to the site where the Malaysian airliner was shot down. The resolution, drafted by Australia, calls on armed groups to stop any actions that harm the integrity of the crash site and calls on the bodies to be treated with dignity and returned to their families. Australia's Foreign Minister Julie Bishop said the resolution would ensure a full and independent investigation took place. Our resolution also demands a full, thorough and independent international investigation into this Act. We must have answers. We must have justice. We owe it to the victims and their families to determine what happened and who was responsible. South Korean police say they found the body of tycoon Yoo Byun-un, who went on the run shortly after a passenger ferry sank in April, killing more than 300 people. His family owns the ferry operator. Police say a decomposed corpse found last month matches the DNA of his brother. The body was reportedly found in a field in a city 300 kilometres south of Seoul. A massive manhunt was launched for the 73-year-old billionaire after the vessel sank, killing hundreds of schoolchildren. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Very good morning to you. The time 8.33. This is Money for Nothing. And we still have a couple of guests coming up in the program when we return to our focus on money and uh, business issues. Mark Michelson, Senior Counselor at APCO Worldwide, will be with us to talk about the BRICS Development Bank. And Martin Henneke will be along uh, as well. He's the Chief Economist of the Henley Group. And we'll be talking about the I-bonds that the Hong Kong government will roll out shortly. But first now, we return to coverage of the news stories in greater detail.
Separatist leaders in eastern Ukraine have just handed over the black box flight recorders, which may finally solve the mystery of how a Malaysian civilian airliner crashed in Ukraine. Earlier, a refrigerated train carrying the remains of most of the victims had set off from a station near the crash site, heading its thought for the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv. At the moment, many international journalists remain at the crash site. Among them is the BBC's Natalia Antalava. It was the first day today that uh, investigators from Holland, three investigators, uh, came to the area. So that does feel like a breakthrough. One thing that was certainly striking is just how disproportionate their number was to the sheer uh, land area of the scene. I mean, you can drive around that for 20 minutes. I mean, it stretches over several fields that are littered with parts of the aircraft and body parts. And just before the investigators came, and we were approached on separate occasions by two men and one handed me an Indonesian passport and another one handed me an ID card of a Dutch uh, passenger and said, look, we found this, we've been asked to come and help, we found these and we have no idea what to do with them. So that just gives you a sense of how disorganised and chaotic has been. And that is really, really problematic because in those uh, crucial four days, key evidence has already been lost. The handing over... Uh, the handing over of the flight recorder came shortly after the UN Security Council approved a, res- a resolution that was put forward by Australia. They were calling for a full investigation into the downing of the airliner. Australia's Foreign Minister Julie Bishop told the council justice must be served. Our resolution demands that armed groups in control of the crash site provide safe access immediately to allow for the recovery of the bodies and that these armed groups stop any actions that compromise the integrity of the crash site. This is imperative. There must be a ceasefire in the immediate area around the site. The victims must be treated with dignity, brought back to their homes and laid to rest. All parties are required to fully cooperate with these efforts. Russia must use its influence over the separatists to ensure this. Australia's Foreign Minister Julie Bishop. Meantime, President Obama said that Moscow must compel the separatists to cooperate with the investigation. Russia has extraordinary influence over these separatists. Russia has urged them on. Russia has trained them. We know that Russia has armed them. Key separatist leaders are Russian citizens. Russia and President Putin in particular has direct responsibility to compel them to cooperate with the investigation. That is the least that they can do. One of our American correspondents, Daniel Renches, was asked for more on what Mr. Obama was saying. Well, I think that it's clear that what he's trying to do is to uh, continue the pattern of the international community, which is to isolate Russia diplomatically. And in order to do that, they've obviously come to the UN Security Council and put significant pressure on Russia to sign on to this resolution, which they duly have done. Yes, the language was changed uh, from uh, shooting down or or firing down of the plane to downing of the plane uh, to appease Russia to allow them to uh, sign on to this resolution. But uh, President Obama has often been put in a position where people are sort of saying, shrugging their shoulders and saying, so what? Uh, But uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, some tougher 
sanctions were put on Russia recently by the United States. And I think uh, there is a feeling here uh, that uh, the next move in terms of the pressure pr could probably come from Europe, but that that's been complicated, uh, obviously, by this plane crash. And therefore, all of the focus now must be on the investigation itself uh, to uncover any additional facts which would give them the conclusion that they clearly have already reached, which is that these separatists have uh, potentially made a major mistake in shooting down this weapon using Russian uh, anti-aircraft uh, uh, munitions. Um, now, there is still a long way to go before everything is sort of confirmed, but I think that given what's happened at the UN Security Council today, it's a step forward in that process. I don't think, frankly, that President Obama had many moves to make today other than the sort of rhetorical stance that he took. Dan Rensch is speaking earlier this morning on Hong Kong Today. Diplomatic efforts to broker a truce in Gaza have intensified. The U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has met with the American Secretary of State John Kerry in Cairo. Mr. Ban has also or has again called for an immediate and unconditional ceasefire. But does a truce seem close to ending the fighting that has now claimed 500 lives? Daniel Kurtzer formerly served as U.S. ambassador to both Israel and Egypt. I don't think so. Uh, it looks as though both uh, Israel and Hamas uh, have not yet secured their objectives. Uh, the Israelis want to do further damage to the tunnels and to try to degrade Hamas's military capabilities. Hamas uh, wants to prove that it can inflict uh, harm on Israeli soldiers and stand up in this fight. And so I think the uh, ceasefire negotiations are going to proceed apace. But we may be a few days away from any uh, completion of them. The Israelis have actually tried quite hard to avoid civilian casualties, although it hasn't worked. They've uh, sent messages, they've done telephone calls, uh, but these are hard to uh, see, the, see, see through in a situation such as Gaza, where the population is uh, so overwhelmingly uh, compacted in a small area. So it's, uh, it's really a problem. Uh, the military uh, wants to accomplish its purposes, trying to avoid civilian casualties, but that's going to be one of the corollaries of this operation. That's Daniel Kurtzer, former U.S. ambassador to Israel and Egypt. The time is now 20 minutes before 9 o'clock, and this is Money for Nothing. Let's get a market check. The Nikkei is up 94 points in early trading at 15,310. Also, markets in Australia and Seoul are higher. Uh, the dollar is trading now at 101.47 yen. The euro, $1.35. And gold is priced at $1,312.20. Last Friday, the Hong Kong government announced the launch of the fourth inflation-linked retail bond, or the I-bond. The maximum size of the fourth, fourth I-bond issuance will be $10 billion, and it will have a tenor of three years. Bondholders will be paid interest once every six months at a rate linked to inflation in Hong Kong, subject to a minimum rate of 1%. For some discussion of this, we're joined by Martin Haneke, the chief economist at the Henley Group. Martin, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So the I-bond, uh, this is really meant to help Hong Kong people uh, who are trying to guard against inflation. And the, the performance of the previous three issues have been pretty solid. Well, it, it might help Hong Kong people who don't have a lot of savings. 
you know, because if you do have a, a reasonable amount of savings, you won't get um, a reasonable um, percentage allocation of your net worth because currently the consensus is that for this uh, I-bond issue that there's quite a lot of demand for it and um, that there, there may be an allocation of uh, um, approximately 10,000 Hong Kong dollar that um, investors will be able to get and that's not really a huge amount. So I think the perhaps the more important question is, what is being done with um, with, with uh, amounts people use to subscribe? Uh, often, what happens is banks come back to those investors saying, "Well, you didn't get you know as much as you wanted. So how about you invest in those traditional bond funds or high yield bond funds, which are still hugely popular with investors today, even though high yield bond yield is five percent minus default rate minus fund charges." That's an interesting charge. So you, you say the banks are using this um, really as a lever to get a lot of other business. Yes, obviously, you know, they, that's, that's quite normal. So they say, yeah, well, you, you know, unfortunately we didn't get quite it's this. It's not illegal. This is, this Nothing wrong with it. Yeah, no, no. I'm just and the saying banks it. that's themselves, the bigger question. That's the banks the don't question. determine uh, the allotment that people get. No, no, absolutely yeah. not. I'm just saying that, you know, I mean, the main question about it is that you just won't be getting enough, you yeah. know. So it's because not so really many <laughs> people, I, we, we had half a million people here subscribe to the third batch. Uh, right. People really yeah. like these I-bonds. Yeah. Um, so if we're in a period where interest rates might be going up, does that change your view about this investment? Well, generally speaking, I'm, I'm not necessarily now about those particular I-bonds here, but generally speaking, inflation-linked bonds may be relatively more attractive than long-term fixed interest rate bonds. Having said that, you know, if you buy inflation-linked bonds on the secondary market, they may not be as attractive, you know, as, uh, as in the uh, primary market, for example. So, um, but, but again, for me, the main question here, if, you, if you're discussing this um, specifically for Hong Kong, you just won't be getting enough. That's, you know, end of the story, really. It's, really, it's just not, don't, it's you, not going to make any difference it's not to any difference in your portfolio because you, get, you know it's only so many of, people want to do it it's such a good deal that yeah. uh, your chance of getting a big allowance is nothing to subscribe to that at the bank or not for for you know a minimal allocation that's the real question but but really the bigger thing is then people start to think around oh you know should i try to invest in bonds in summer and then they look at the other you know bond type of investment alternative that are there and we have got some interesting support there's some prominent support last week you will be interested to hear brian since we have talked about the bonds for some quite some time that the and Lewis, um, Federal Reserve President James Bullard, actually said he was quite worried about a, a bubble in the bond markets, not in the equity markets, and saying that bond yields are extraordinarily low. And then you have a, a couple of other news also coming out of um, the Eurozone last week, warnings on uh, Italy downgrading the GDP expectation. The IMF came out say, well, maybe people are too optimistic Generally, unemployment in Europe is high. The debt in Europe is high. And then the, the head of the French um, essential chamber of business um, coming out last night and saying that if France was a business, it would be heading for bankruptcy and the, the economy was catastrophic. So there's a lot of things, I think, to worry. And if you combine, so you, if you combine the low yields on, on sovereign bonds in many countries, especially in Europe now, with the, the worsening GDP outlook, I mean, that's really a recipe for a big bond bubble disaster. Are you more concerned about high yield bonds or junk bonds than you are about, let's say, some government bonds in Europe? 
Um, well, if you ask me to pick the very worst type of bond to buy, I would say it's a hard choice between 50-year French government bonds and then long-term Japanese sovereign bonds because Japan has actually got the highest debt-to-GDP ratio of them all and they're now getting into a very interesting situation because inflation is on the rise. The Japanese are getting nervous to lose their savings again. Most of their money is stuck in savings because they've lost their shirt for 30 years in, in, in property and stocks. They put all the money in cash and government bonds at essentially no yield and now inflation is coming up so they are getting uh, losing again due to inflation so soon the government in Japan might have to raise rates so that's okay. why I say those are the worst but high yield bonds do, I mean, 5% 5% historically high yield bonds yield 10 to 15% right I mean you know 5% I mean can't get any any lower than that so if interest rates just rise a bit it, if default rates come up a bit um, if the economy you know weakens well, the reason okay let's take a deep breath exhale slowly because you are rapid fire okay give people a break for a moment. Uh, uh, people are buying high yield because obviously interest rates are, you know, very low and the default rates have been very low. You know, most of these companies that are issuing these bonds that, um, you know, are offering a coupon of seven, eight, nine, ten percent, which brings up the, the uh, fund yields on this, um, they're not going into default. Um, they may, but they haven't been. Yeah, that's the right word. Haven't been recently. So if you look at the average yield, um, it's 5%. If you're looking at high yield bonds funds, which are quite typically used in Hong Kong, you're looking at maybe a total expense ratio of around 1.5%. So you've got 5% minus 1.5%. It's a 3.5% maximum yield you probably get. And you deduct at least a percent inflation, so 2.5% maximum upside. Then you have got a little bit of default, another, you know, at least half a percent. I mean, actually 1%, I think, is the most recent number, the lowest you ever could have possibly seen. So maybe 1.5% maximum upside. Only if capital appreciation comes in, you might get more. And that's really why the performance of the past five years has been so good. Capital appreciation because everybody went in. Yeah. But if that's not going to be there, it's nothing to gain, maybe 1% to gain and everything to lose as capital appreciation may turn into capital depreciation. Okay. Inflation goes up. Okay, again, yeah, all right. Um, <laughs> you get it now. <laughs> let's, uh, let's just have one final quick question, then we'll get to our tech update, and then we'll get to Mark Mac Michelson talking about uh, the BRICS development bank. Um, what's your best idea at the moment? Where do you like new money to go? Well, I still think precious metals is the one area that I think is best value, you know, against uh, protection from inflation from a bond bubble. Um, although I, as, as you know, I also do see um, quite quite a few pockets in different equity markets that seem quite reasonable. Some of the emerging markets, you know, China, okay. for example, but gold and silver would still be the first bet after they, you know, the present prices are very, very attractive. Okay, Martin, thanks very much for joining us here on the program. Martin Henneke, Chief Economist at the Henley Group. And we morph over quickly now into our tech update of the program, which we're trying to target every day for about this time in the show. And here's Angelina Draper. Good morning. This is a big week for second quarter earnings reports from the technology industry. Yesterday, Netflix announced their earnings more than doubled to 71 million US dollars from 29 million a year ago. The company, which recently surpassed the 15 million, 50 million subscriber mark, expects to double its investment in original content in this year. Netflix exceeded the quarter's expected subscriber number with overseas customers accounting for over 1 million of the 1.7 million newly acquired subscribers. Later today, Apple, Microsoft and Electronic Arts will release their figures, while tomorrow is Facebook's turn. Amazon reports come out on Thursday. 
Twitter has taken another step towards the e-commerce sector by acquiring the payment infrastructure company Cardspring. How Twitter plans to use Cardspring is not yet 100% clear, but the newly acquired technology allows retailers to offer online shoppers discounts that automatically sync with their credit cards, as well as virtual coupons. Twitter has experimented with these types of deals before, but analysts expect the acquisition to solidify the company's in-tweet purchasing strategy in time for the Christmas shopping season. According to a report from Vision Mobile, half of iOS developers and even as many as 64% of Android developers are operating below the so-called app poverty line of 500 US dollars per app per month. Over 10,000 developers from 137 countries responded to the survey, which found that only a very small percentage of developers as little as 1.6% to be precise, generate most of the revenue made in in in-app stores. It is estimated that there are 2.9 million mobile app developers worldwide. All right, Angelina, thank you. That's our tech update here on Money for Nothing. Good morning to you. Nice to have you with us here on Radio 3. Money for nothing. The time is about 10 minutes before 9 o'clock. Well, the leaders of the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, signed a treaty to launch a BRICS development bank. We haven't had too much discussion on the program uh, to date since this was launched a week ago. So we thought we'd talk to Mark Michelson, senior counselor at APCO Worldwide, on this notion of a BRICS development bank. Mark, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So... Is this going to make a big difference? Will it cut into the the emphasis or the uh, impact of the IMF and the World Bank? It, it's too early to tell, but it's certainly a ref, reflection, and it, and it's a it's a it was created in part in reaction to what many many countries, not only the BRICS countries, but but many others perceive as the IMF's and World Bank's. Uh, Slowness in responding to changes in the world economy and changes in the balance of the world economy, because the BRICS make up a quarter of the of the world economy, and although they they've been considered more of an acronym than a real ga- gathering or a real body of, of of countries, now they're trying to put some uh, some money where their mouth is. Is it a big victory for China that it will be headquartered in Shanghai? Well, I think it is. There was that was that almost actually upset the whole the whole business because over where South it was Africans going to be really and so on. It. So the so the Indians, I, I guess, are going to have the president, and there'll be a, some other divisions. But I think it, it helps, and it should be. You know, China is, for example, in the in the special fund that they're having, the hundred billion dollar fund, uh, forty one billion of that is China, and China obviously is a big player in this whole group and dominates it, and and also maybe maybe makes it a little bit imbalanced for that reason. So as China will dominate, is it likely that China benefits the most? Well, China will benefit, but of course the the the, the members that are that need the money the most are is not necessarily China. It's it's several of the others. Especially, and you think that Russia would have about the least influence now, given what's happening geopolitically. I know, but politically, this this still is a is a is a big headline for Russia, and it gets them involved. And and of course, it wasn't coincidental that this was formed seventy years after Bretton Woods, almost exactly seventy years after Bretton Woods, and sort of giving giving an indication that it's no longer the the Western style economies that are that are leading us now, but we're going back to really what, what people were talking about in the 1950s uh, with Zhou Enlai and, and, uh, and Nehru and, and many others about the developing countries and now uh, some of the more advanced developing countries doing something.
something a little bit different. Yet the growth of these five countries uh, in 2007 was like 10 and a half percent. And, you know, right. we're looking now at a slowing in in uh, BRICS countries. The average growth is probably going to be five and a half percent this year. How does the creation of a BRICS development bank um, help speed that up? Well, it, it, it depends on how it works, right? What they've got is 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 two two major parts, the new development bank, new acronyms again, the the NDB, which is sort of like the World Bank, and then uh, and then a, a a contingent reserve arrangement CRA, which is going to have a uh, hundred billion dollars. That's the forty one billion com- contributed by China and, and other parts contributed by the other members, which is going to sort of work with the IMF in a way because some of the uh, the borrowers will be subject to to working with the IMF if they get above a certain level. The problem is, of course, is the monitoring systems, the surveillance, all those sorts of things that the IMF does still do pretty well, that this 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 new institution is going to have to develop over time. And so that will affect us as to how much it really uh, has an impact, I think, in the short run. Does this impact at all China's desire to have a fully convertible international currency? It's not not clear. I mean, I guess this is along the line in the sense that China is – this is clearly a step where China's – Taking a a more a more uh, specific global role, a more outgoing global role than it had in the past, and as part of that, if you really want to become a global leader in the in financial markets, you should have an open a more open financial market, and that includes a, a fully convertible currency. So, I guess in that sense, whether this will have a direct impact or not, it's not clear to me. Maybe some of your other analysts could say, but again. Really early days, really early days, but symbolically quite important. Do you think that this in any way leads the IMF and the World Bank to change a little bit? Well, you know, they've been moving in that direction, but they haven't been moving very fast. For example, China has fewer votes than the Benelux countries. Hmm. Which doesn't seem exactly fair, as, as second we'll biggest say. economy now, in the world. Yeah, then yeah. it's not the not to denigrate the Benelux countries, but at the same time, there have been reforms proposed. But of course, those, like many others, are being blocked by the U.S. Congress, which isn't passing anything, and not only related to the IMF, but in terms of trade. So, of course, there's some skepticism. At the same time, this doesn't really say that we're giving up on the IMF or the World Bank or, or the WTO, for that matter, because all the countries are participants in, in those organizations as well, and that's part of, the, uh, part, of the, uh, part of what they're going to do. But at the same time, I think it's a test, and it will, I, I hope, push the IMF and World Bank and the other institutions to greater reform and greater involvement of those, of those countries that are, are trying to have a greater voice for good reason, I think. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for uh, coming on the program. That's Mark Michelson, Senior Counselor, APCO Worldwide on the BRICS Development Bank. Well, back to the news. The mainland's top official in Hong Kong, Zhang Dejiang, has held a second day of meetings with pro-establishment groups in Shenzhen. They've been discussing political reform. As Richard Pine reports, the NPC chairman stressed Beijing's desire to see Hong Kong achieve universal suffrage, but that this has to be done in accordance with the basic law. The NPC chairman is said to have emphasized the central government's wish to see universal suffrage implemented in Hong Kong in 2017. Zhang Dejiang, along with other prominent Beijing officials, such as the director of the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, Wang Guangya, and the chairman of the Basic Law Committee, Li Fei, continued meeting with pro-establishment groups in Shenzhen yesterday to discuss political reform. A representative of the Federation of Trade Unions, lawmaker Wang Kwok Kin, said after attending a two-hour meeting that Mr. Zhang reiterated that Hong Kong must carry out any reforms gradually 
and in strict accordance with the basic law and the relevant decisions made by the NPC Standing Committee. DAB Chairman Tamu Chung added that Mr. Zhang did not make any specific reference to civil nomination, that is, allowing ordinary voters to nominate CE candidates, or the proposed Occupy Central campaign during the dialogue. However, the chairman of the Federation of Hong Kong Industries, Stanley Lau, who met with Mr. Zhang over the weekend, said it was obvious that Beijing rejects civil nomination. Civil nomination it was not under you know the uh, the criteria of the basic law, so uh, Mr. Chang you know has mentioned many times that you know our all the elections must be under the uh, criteria of the basic law, so means you know um, civil nomination you know is is not not included. Pan Democrats have slammed Beijing officials for being selective in arranging the meetings. They said Mr. Jiang should also meet with them to hear alternative voices on political reform. The Chief Secretary Carrie Lam urged the pan-Democrats to show some sincerity in their efforts to engage with mainland officials. She said they could start by not setting preconditions for any meetings. As the CE has said on various occasions, uh, we are very committed to facilitating communications between various sectors with uh, central uh, authorities' officials. But of course, uh, it needs to, uh, two to tango. So I, I hope that uh, while we will continue to uh, do this facilitating role, that uh, pan-democratic members will also express some sincerity in attending these meetings. And we will continue to make every effort uh, to make sure that uh, these sort of meetings Two minutes now before nine o'clock. Well, he was one of the world's richest men, Karl Albrecht, the reclusive German businessman who founded the Aldi discount supermarket chain, has died. The BBC's Steve Evans reports. Karl Hans Albrecht was born in 1920, the son of a miner whose wife ran a small grocery shop in the Ruhr in West Germany. He served in the German army during the war and when he returned, took over the running of his mother's business alongside his brother Theo. They called the business Aldi after Albrecht discount. Costs and prices were ultra low, every penny counted. Employees said the brothers would use old pencil stubs to keep accounts. In 1960, they fell out over whether to sell cigarettes. Theo was in favour of selling them and Karl was against. The business was split, with Carl taking control of Aldi Sud, the company which now owns the supermarket chain in Britain. Carl Albrecht was reclusive, playing golf on his own private course. He negotiated the release of his kidnapped brother and, according to the German media, tried to offset the ransom against tax. As one paper put it today, the bare minimum was enough. It's the story of his lifestyle, despite his billions, and his business philosophy. Steve Evans reporting. That's our program today. The weather fine and hot with some haze, isolated showers, the maximum 33. Morning Brew is next. Driving down, driving down.